Uh, well, we are, uh, I'm back, by the way, you know, I don't, Chris Matthews didn't shrink, it is me. <laughs> and uh, we're going to be picking back up on some, just a few more things uh, dealing with ecclesiology. Uh, before we do that, let me just pray for our time and pray for myself and pray for uh, God's word. Okay, let's pray together. Father, Lord, again, we thank you for um, your mercy and grace, Lord. The, the reality is, Lord, that Father, because of our sin, Lord, we deserve to perish, Lord, just like Jesus said in Luke 13, uh, Lord, that, um, that, that we, we should not think of others that perish in, in, in tragedy as worse sinners than, than, than ourselves, Lord. But thanks, for, thanks be to God for your mercy and your grace, Lord, that sustains us, Lord. And um, we do pray for families around the DFW area, Lord, especially Dallas, that have been affected by the tornadoes and, Lord, have lost their homes. Many of them lost their lives. And so, Father, there are many um, families that are grieving even to this very moment, Lord. And so we pray that you would just minister to them. And if there's anything that we can do, Lord, to minister to our community, uh, I pray that you would direct us in that, Lord. So, Father, we pray for them. We lift them up to you now. And we pray for our time, Lord. We pray that you would instruct us as we we think about the means of grace in the church, Lord. We pray that this would be a, a rich time to, to be reminded, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So um, I am going to be tackling uh, the doctrine of the means of grace. And um, Wayne Grudem begins uh, talking about the means of grace with these simple questions. He says, what are the different activities within the life of the church that God uses to bring blessing to us? That's kind of what he... Um, that's kind of what he uh, wants to get at in terms of the means of grace. And then uh, he also asks a secondary question that we'll talk about in a minute. But he says, what do we miss if we neglect involvement in a local church? So let me just ask you all, I guess just to, to get us started here. Um, what, when, when theologians talk about the means of grace, what do they mean? What do they mean? What, what, what are the various... Uh, known means of grace. Yes, sir? Do you want to know what he means? Or yeah, what do they mean? Do you, do you know what they're getting at when they say that? Yeah, the different things that he uses in order to, uh, to bless us, to grow us, to sanctify us. Right. So different means, different instrumentality, different uh, methods. methods that God uses to, to grow us and to bless us uh, in our Christian walk, right? Um, it's important that we distinguish uh, the means of grace uh, really from a, a Reformed persuasion, because from a Catholic persuasion, <laughs> the means of grace meant something entirely different. Uh, the means of grace were actually, actually uh, basically uh, sacerdotal, if you would. In other words, they imparted the grace to you, but it was the saving grace of God. So you, got the, you, you essentially got salvation through what they considered to be the, the means of grace, which really ultimately ended up being just referencing their seven sacraments. So uh, that's not what we mean at all by that. Uh, we do not mean that you gain salvation by the utilization of the means of grace. Um, you don't gain salvation, but you do uh, grow in respect to salvation. Again, that's another way of saying it. Uh, it's the difference between uh, working out your salvation versus working for your salvation, right? Uh, that's that's what the means of grace is all about. So let me just give um, a standard uh, definition, I guess, of the means of grace here. This is a, a, just a couple definitions, one by Hodge and one by Grudem. Charles Hodge 
says the means of grace, as before stated, are those means which God has ordained for the end of communicating the life-giving and sanctifying influences of the Spirit to the souls of men. Now, I like that because it brings in the, 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 uh, the concept of pneumatology, that the Spirit of God, this is what the Spirit of God uses in our lives to, to bless us and to grow us. Also, Wayne Grudem may, may be a little bit more simple. He says, the means of grace are any activities within the fellowship of the church that God uses to give more grace to Christians. Now, just from the outset, uh, recognize that, I guess, if we were to take historical theology, if we were to take, well, what have other theologians said along you know, the centuries type of thing? What, what have other respected theologians thought about in terms of the means of grace? Wayne Grudem is actually more broad uh, than all of them. He, he actually has a list of about 10 different things that are the means of grace. Um, but um, historically speaking, what are the central means of grace? You think you can list them? Anybody? Yes, sir? So the ministry of the word and pre- preaching, it, it's, it's interesting that you said preaching, Scott, because one of the means of grace that is stated is the word, right? Uh, but when the theologians of the Reformed tradition, anyway, when they talked about the word being the means of grace, what they had in mind more than anything was the preaching of the word, <laughs> which is really interesting. I mean, that's, that's really the technical uh, definition of the means of grace being through the word, right? So that even more than um, even more than personal Bible study, uh, which of course is a is a what we could say a means of grace, even more than personal memorization or meditation, um, theologians focus on the, the the means of grace with the word being preached to you. <laughs> You know, which is really remarkable. Yes, sir. So does it separate that out as two different means, essentially, as one being preached and two personal studies? Yes, sir. More of like primary and secondary, okay. right? Because the means of grace has been always connected. That's why we're studying uh, ecclesiology. The means of grace is an ecclesiastical topic. In other words, it's connected to the doctrine of the church, right? And so what theologians are asking is, what has God instituted in the church, in the life of the church, in the Christian life, which is obviously to them only uh, through its connection to the local church? They, uh, you know, the, the, the Reformed theologians, they, they didn't conceive of Christianity even existing separate from the church, <laughs> right? To them, like a, a, a Lone Ranger type Christian Right was basically like an oxymoron. I mean, it just simply didn't exist in their in their understanding. They would view that as apostasy, right? So they would say, "Is so? What has God designed for the life of the Christian in the context of the church to grow and to bless His people?" Uh, that's 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 a big one. So yeah, uh, preaching the word versus uh, personal Bible study is the difference between what is. God, what God primarily gives us in the context of the church and what God also blesses us in private study. Yes, ma'am. What about prayer? Prayer is another, is another means of... Now, prayer is an interesting one, uh, Marianne, because um, it's actually a debated one. Um, Charles Hodge, interesting, we're quoting Hodge here, but Charles Hodge actually listed um, prayer as a means of grace. 
where other theologians said no. Uh, the means of grace would fall under a secondary uh, category. Of course, you know, they all qualify. Look, all of these all of these different things that you can, because as you're thinking in your mind, you can start thinking of different things. What about fellowship, right? I mean, fellowship is a means of grace. And so we can extrapolate all the way out to basically talk about every aspect of the Christian life. But uh, many theologians disagreed with Hodge, and they said, no, the primary means of grace is not prayer. So the primary means of grace would be the word and what they would call the word and sacrament. The word and sacrament. Uh, the word sacrament kind of being more of a um, traditional word for ordinance, right? Yes, sir? Why, why not, if you have any idea, would they say that prayer is not ordinance? Because, because the way that they saw it is that it had to do, it, it, it really had to do with the authority of the church, right? That the word and the, and, and, and the sacraments come to you uh, really through uh, ordained uh, licensed, <laughs> officially recognized, qualified ministers of God. So it all had to do with ecclesiology. It's really interesting, and it really challenged me because I thought, "Wow, you know, I have a, you know, I have such an evangelical theology, right? Such a non-Catholic theology, <laughs> right? That sometimes we tend to, to to take a lower view of the church, really, right? Whereas for the reformers, they viewed." Uh, the clergy of the church with the most, you know, the highest esteem imaginable. You know, they, they saw that the pastor was, you know, the, the, the ordained, uh, authorized person that God had called to dispense the means of grace to his people. You know, I mean, we've really fallen quite far from the reformed worldview in that area. You know, um, and so that's the way that they look at it. Um, I, I know a lot of questions would come, so um, uh, I guess what we can do is because I don't have this in my uh, I don't have this in my thing. Anymore, but let me see if this well. Let me know. This works here. I guess what we could do is we could put two different categories of the means of grace, and we'll do that. Um, we will certainly do that when they come up, and so. What I would say is that the means of grace, right, is word and sacrament. And I'm just using sacrament. I know we can fight over that because <laughs> for some of you it's just too much Catholicism, right? But um, we use sacrament only because that's more historical theology, right? You're going to find that term. So I'm just letting you know now. Word and sacrament is really the means of grace that theologians all agree on, and nobody disagrees on that. Now, some would add, so what we could say is that these would be the primary means of grace, and then the secondary means, right, would be things like prayer. What else would be a means of grace, secondary means of grace? Yes, sir? Well, something I was just noticing, yeah. I was thinking about earlier, and there are two definitions. And it's funny that you mentioned that Hodge lists prayer and Grudem doesn't. Uh -huh. Isn't there well, Grudem does. Oh, he does? Uh, yeah, it? other theologians did not. Because Grudem specifically says activities within the fellowship of the church, Hodge <coughs> does not. And so it seems like Grudem's talking That's about definitely what Hodge meant. Okay. Even though he didn't state it there. Okay. Yeah, definitely. Um, and we can actually... Know, as we get into the uh, the nature of the means of grace, uh, there's a few things that are very important for us. Actually, 
uh, Burkhoff, which is another really good systematic theolo- you know, the- theology, he gives four um, really observations, things that he wants us to understand of the nature of the means of grace. Like, for example, number one, it is part of God's special grace as opposed to his common, common grace. It is a, ga- a category of God's special grace that is his redemptive or his salvific grace. It is not part of God's common grace, right? Um, these are kind of obvious, right? But then also, they are grace in themselves. In other words, nothing needs to attend um, uh, the word when it comes to you. In other words, what, what, they were, what, what Reformed theologians are trying to shy away from is the idea that uh, any of the means of grace need to be mingled with something other than themselves. So like, for example, experience, right? Um, Prime example of this would be the theology of Jonathan Edwards. Jonathan Edwards wrote a book, um, Thoughts on Revival, when he talks about the revival of uh, Northampton, where he, he critiques the experience that people had during that time of the Great Awakening. And he critiqued, his biggest critique probably of all was that conversion can, be a, uh, uh, conversion can be associated with all these other things, tears, emotion, uh, brokenness, right? All of these things, a changed life, reformed, right? Uh, a reform, uh, habits that change, all of this, right? And still not be saving, that's his whole premise, right? You can have all these external signs of grace, but what really matters is the authentic converting grace of God itself, right? That's kind of like what the Reformed theologians are saying here, is that they are grace in themselves. They need nothing attached to them. Now, we'll get to a nuance of that in a minute, but then the other thing is this, that this grace is continuous, does anybody know what they meant by that? That the, 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 the means of grace are continuous. Anybody can think of why they would point that out? How do you think they mean continuous? What's that? Anyone? Nonstop? Yeah, it's ongoing, right? Versus what? Temporary, one time, right? In other words, instead of this being a mere consequence in your life, right? Instead of this being sort of a punctuated experience in your life, this is actually an ongoing thing in your life. The means of grace are meant to be constant in your life, continuous, right? So this is maybe the difference, again, even connected to the previous point, this would be almost the difference between, you know, saying that we need a, you know, a mountain high experience with God, right? <laughs> uh, you know, men's retreats are, are kind of notorious for that, right? You go to a men's retreat, you get all charged up, right? Everyone's prayed up and cried up and <laughs> confessed up and, you know what I mean? And then you come down and then you say, oh, well, now we're going to come down from the mountain. You know, it's like, you know, no one can stay at that revival point, you know? Uh, but the means of grace are constant. We don't come down from the means of grace, in other words, right? These are things that God has ordained for us to be uh, experiencing all the life long. Uh, the other thing is that he also says they are official. Now, official, I wanted to actually quote Burkhoff here. This is what he says. 
He says, they are official means of the church of Jesus Christ, the preaching of the word or the word preached, and the administration of the sacraments or the sacraments administered are the means officially instituted in the church by which the Holy Spirit works and performs faith in the hearts of men. So in other words, the reason why theologians are concerned about the means of grace is that they want us to acknowledge what has been officially instituted in the church, right? Uh, And who instituted these things in the church? Jesus, the head of the church, right? As the head of the church, he institutes the means of grace for his church. He teaches his disciples, um, uh, maybe in the Great Commission, right? Matthew chapter 28, verse uh, 19 to 20, it says, you know, that, uh, that we are to teach, right, everything that he command, right? Make disciples, baptizing them, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I commanded you. So there you have a call for, in a sense, the ordinance and the preaching of the word together. Now, <clears throat> notice here, Burkhoff again says, he says, by which the Holy Spirit works and confirms faith in the heart of men. Now, that's interesting because with reference to the Holy Spirit, the Reformers were careful to point out that the Spirit was necessary to attend his word so that it would have its effect on the sinner. Um, Burkhoff says, they refuse to consider the efficacious nature of of the word of God as an impersonal power resident in the word. Now, this is kind of a a debated point. You know, theologians go back and forth. Lutherans and uh, the Reformed uh, uh, folks, which followed who? You had Lutherans, and then you had the what's known as... So you had two camps here, right, in the Reformation. You had Luther, and who else? Calvin. That's right. Calvin and those that followed along Calvin's lines, like Zwingli and others, okay? But, so then you had Lutheranism, and then under Calvin, essentially, you had the Reformed, okay? This is important only because if you study any systematic theology, these are the categories they will put it in. They will talk about Lutheranism versus the traditional Reformed view, which is like, wait a minute, I thought Luther was Reformed. <laughs> yes, he was in his soteriology, but that does not mean that Lutheranism, right, follows the same tradition as a standard uh, uh, doctrines of other great reformers like Calvin and Zwingli, and then later like Owen and the Puritans and things like that. But uh, Burkhoff says that the, the Spirit has to attend the Word of God. So, in other words, what they're saying is that if a sinner takes the Bible to himself and begins to read the Bible. The Bible doesn't have a mystical, magical power in itself. It, a salvation can kind of rub off as osmosisly, right? The Spirit has to work in order for the Word of God to be driven. It's kind of like a, um, it, it's kind of like a, I don't want to say a moot point, but it is, you know, and I, I don't want to say it's also, you know, kind of splitting hairs because then I look bad. It is important, <laughs> you know, because what we're saying is that the Word of God has to be empowered by the Spirit. Bavink said, the Word cannot be 
deistically separated from its creator. <laughs> wow. You know, I like that. Right? We cannot imagine that the word has its own power on its own without the influence of the author of the word in the salvation of sinners. Um, any questions on that? Historically, let me just bring this up. Historically, this was important. This point here, the necessity of the Spirit of God to work on the Word, to work through the Word, okay, was important. Because the opposite leads to semi-Pelagianism. And what is that, folks? What is the When you hear semi-Pelagianism or Pelagianism, what do you think about? Anyone? You guys are all good Calvinists. You better know. <laughs> Arminianism. Huh? Arminianism. Arminianism, which really ultimately leads us to the doctrine of what? Humanism, kind of, but even more importantly and more immediately, Pelagianism or Arminianism is the doctrine of free will, right? So human autonomy, right? So it is the human that ultimately is free. And so this is also part of rationalism. So the reason why we have to have this view of the word of God working through the word or, or the spirit of God working through his word because the opposite then is Arminian, the opposite is Pelagian, the opposite is rationalism. The idea that the human reason is autonomous, right? And really what this led to historically, uh, let, me just throw out, let me just throw out a big term out there for you guys, okay? Um, I'm going to need a little bit more of the more here. You guys know what this, have you guys heard of neonomianism? Anyone? Has anybody heard of neonomianism? Chris, you've heard of it? I don't want to put you on the spot, because if you put me on the spot, I probably wouldn't know. Thank you. <laughs> test. Do you remember anything about neonomianism? This was, this was concurrent in the Reformation. And then namas? Right. And so what they said is that ultimately the result was that it was kind of an expression of neonomianism. Because neonomianism was all about that when Christ came, he brought a new law. And that the only law that, that Christ brought with him was faith and repentance. Right. Uh, this was very much present in the theology of Richard Baxter. And many theologians took great issues with Richard Baxter, accusing him of antinomianism and everything else. Okay, but this is this is the reason why this is important, is because according to neonomianism, repentance and faith becomes the basis of salvation. Anybody have a problem with that? What is the basis of salvation? Christ, right? The merit of Christ. The grace of God is the basis of salvation. Not your faith, not your repentance. That is the means of salvation. In other words, that's the instrumentality. That's the, right? Uh, um, someone, somewhere, someone somewhere said, right? That faith is the invisible hand that receives the grace of God, right? But it, it is not the ground of our salvation. Our faith is not the ground of our salvation, and so this was the slogan, that people are not saved by Christ, listen to this, this is neonomianism, but saved by obeying Christ. See the difference? The distinction is 
big. That's what neo-nomianism leads to, though. Is Correct. And that's why it's so bad and why people think that it's such a little difference. But ultimately, it, it changes everything. So do we want to say Richard Baxter was a heretic, he wasn't a Christian? I don't think so. I think that the preliminary stages of all of that theology during even his time and the time of others, like, you know, Owen and Baxter, wow. I mean, they went at it with each other, you know what I mean? But, but uh, I think he was inconsistent. I think that's what it was. I'm being, I'm being nice. Let's move on. Because <laughs> he wrote a great book called The Reformed Pastor that's just, you know, probably the best book you could ever read on pastoral ministry. Um, so anyway, that's what neonomianism, and that's what refusing to acknowledge that it is the Spirit of God moving through his word to save the sinner, right? Uh, instead of the sinner somehow coming to his own rational conclusion on the basis of the propositions of Scripture and saving himself. It's a big difference. Big difference. Which would be in contradiction of 1 Corinthians, which says that um, uh, it says that the natural man can't receive the things of God in his being known. Yes, sir. 1 Corinthians, yeah. 2.14. Yes. Yes, yes, yes. Now, let me just uh, talk about the church for a minute here again, okay? Uh, because the theologians were were in one sense sort of assuming that we understand um, that, that, that when we talk about the means of grace, what we're saying, of course, what we're assuming is that the, we're assuming the centrality of the church, that the church is central to all of the means of grace, right? Matter of fact, Ber- Burkhoff identifies the church as the great means of grace, <laughs> Right, it was so central to them. Uh, so I just wanted to point that out. And then these are the things that we're going to look at: the ministry of the word, the function of the ordinances, and the extent of the means of grace. So everything up to this slide has just been introduction. <laughs> Sorry. So this is where we're going. We're going to be talking about the word, the ordinances, and the extent of the means of grace. And I only do that the extent of the means of grace because, as you can see clear as mud up here, right? As you can see, we've already pointed out prayer, fellowship, right? Uh, yeah, that's supposed to be fellowship. Um, what other secondary means of grace can you think of? Well, we talked about uh, private private study, right? What else? What about worship? Worship? That's definitely... That's definitely going to be listed in Grudem, you know. Uh, and so we'll, we'll talk about the extent of the means of grace, but we have to hit, we have to hit the, the, the main one, which is the ministry of the word and the ordinances. So uh, today uh, we're only going to focus on the word. Uh, so if you guys thought I was going to go fast, I'm not. I'm going really slow, actually. <laughs> so I hope that's okay with you guys. But... Um, that is what we're talking about, the ministry of the Word of God. Now, turn to Acts chapter 20. Acts chapter 20. Some of you are like, finally, the Bible. That's why I love this church. You know? I know you're thinking that. <laughs> uh, Acts chapter 20. Uh, I suppose we can go to verse 32. Make you turn there, uh, even though it's up here as well. Uh, just, you know, this is what the Word of God claims for itself, that it has this gracious influence and power in our lives, right? Um, he says here, Now I commend you to God 
and to the word of his grace, which is able, which he's talking about the word being able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. So just a, you know, just a classic text on the means of grace. The word of God's ability to both build you up and to give you an inheritance among all those that are sanctified. Um, that's what it is. Deuteronomy 32, 47. Uh, Moses told the children of Israel, the, the word of God, the law, this word. He says, this word is not... Um, uh, I don't know how the NASB says, I think what I have in my mind is the King James, uh, where it says, this word is not a trifle for you. In other words, this is not a vain word for you. He says, it is your life. I like that. So the word of God is not inconsequential uh, for us. It is our life. That's what, that's what Moses was telling the children of Israel. And Paul's just reiterating that here in Acts chapter 20. The word of God is what we need to be commended to. The word of his grace, the gospel. Uh, and by extension, we would say, of course, the whole Bible right, is able to build us up and to give us this inheritance. So uh, the word of God is really an amazing thing. I mean, uh, Acts, or excuse me, Psalm 19 is a script. Maybe we can turn there real quick. Uh, at, uh, Psalm 19, uh, which is really one of the most uh, sort of classic passages describing the power of the word, right? <clears throat> Psalm 19, particularly beginning in verse 7. He says, The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. Um, the precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. Uh, the commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. See all of those gracious effects that the Word of God is designed to have in, in, in our lives. I mean, think about that. Uh, look at verse 7 again. Uh, the law of the Lord is perfect, and the, 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 actually the, the proper Hebrew word here is restoring or reviving, right? Uh, the King James, I think, erred by talking about converting the soul, right? Uh, though it does have the power to convert, I don't think that's what the psalmist is intending here. The psalmist is speaking uh, about its power to revive us as believers, uh, the ministry of the word in the life of believers, Right? It, it, it revives our soul. Right? That's what it can do. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. What does that mean? What's wrong with being simple? I like my life being simple. <laughs> I don't get that all the time, but that's what I like. What's wrong with being simple? <laughs> Very good. That's a safe way of putting it. <laughs> it's the opposite of being wise. What else comes to mind when you think about being simple-minded? Yeah, foolish, lacking understanding. How about this one? Lacking discernment, right? Uh, how important is that today? Um, very, very important for us to have discernment in a very undiscerning age in which we live. Also, the Lord, the precepts of the Lord are right 
rejoicing the heart. And so you're starting to get a view of the word of God that it really affects every part of us, right? Every aspect of us. And it says the commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. Now, does that mean the Bible gives you 20-20 vision? So how does he mean eyes here? Spiritual, right? Anybody think of a anybody think of a New Testament passage that would correlate with that? Enlightening the eyes. I'll make it easy. In Paul, I guess easier. In Paul, right? The eyes of our. The eyes of our... What's that? Ephesians 1.18. Ephesians 1.18, that's right. Read that for us, uh, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling. What are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? Mm. And what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe? Mm. Mm. Yeah, that's right. Amen. Now let's turn to Romans chapter 15. Romans chapter 15. These are just really classic texts on the the means of grace being uh, the word and it's you know the power of the word to do this. Romans 15 beginning in verse oh, we can begin in verse 4 because <clears throat> Romans 15:4 is definitely scripture scripture scripture. It says for whatever was written in earlier times that's the Old Testament was written for our instruction so that through perseverance and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. Now may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement, we could even add through the scriptures, right? Grant you to be of the same mind with one another according to Christ Jesus. So there you see uh, the scriptures power to encourage and to give hope. That is what it does. That, that is the essence of the means of grace. To encourage and to give hope to um, believers on their sojourn, on their pilgrimage. I've been thinking a lot about that. I'm going to be preaching a little bit about that today. But uh, of the pilgrimage that we're on. How about another one? I have it here on the screen. 2 Timothy chapter 3. I've always been impressed by this one only because um, uh, it's just so beautiful the way that Paul... Uh, brings us, he brings us in and just the, the, the necessity for orthodoxy because if you look at the context of 2 Timothy chapter 3, you'll note that in the context of 2 Timothy 3, uh, the Apostle Paul is talking about the peril of false, false teachers, uh, people who deceive. And so in the context of false teachers, right, he says to Timothy, you however... Continue in the things you have learned and become convinced of, knowing from who you learned them and that from childhood you have, you have known the sacred writings. Uh, sacred writings. And really, I think that should be scripture because it's graphe, which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. So there it is. I mean, it just you can extract so much from just from that, you know. Yeah. 
Wayne Grudem says, in terms of the effectiveness of the word, he says, so closely are the growth and strength of the church linked to the reign of the word of God in people's lives that more than once uh, the book of Acts can describe the growth of the church as the growth of the word of God. Isn't that remarkable? Acts chapter 7, verse 6, the word of God increased. That's an interesting way of talking about that, is it not? The word of God increased. The number of the disciples multiplied greatly. Uh, Acts 12, 24, but the word of God grew and multiplied. It's an interesting way of talking about the word. Growing and multiplying. Yeah, because it's connected to the lives of the disciples. Also, Acts 13, 49, the word of the Lord spread throughout all the region. It's beautiful. It's wonderful. So, I mean, there you go. There you go. So connected. It's a living word. It's an active word. Hebrews 4, right? It is sharper than any two-edged sword, right? So many, so many texts on the effectiveness of the Word of God. And uh, here's one, therefore, on the necessity of the Word of God. Look at First Thess, or I can just read it to you here. First Thessalonians 2.13. This is a great one. <clears throat> For this reason, we also constantly thank God that when you receive the Word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. Isn't that amazing? Uh, it's, it's the living word of God. And here he uses the word performs its work. And ergetai, it works. The, the Bible works. <laughs> Uh, it, it, it's productive. It performs its work in us. Uh, Charles Hodge said, I have a quote here. Hodge says <clears throat> that Christianity flourished just in proportion to the degree in which the Bible is known and its truths are diffused among the people. He says the nations where, where the Bible is unknown sit in darkness. That's uh, Wayne Grudem quoting Hodge. And that's exactly right. Turn with me to uh, Psalm 147. I guess uh, just many places that we can, we can prove that in many ways, but this is one that I always, always go to, right? Psalm 1, did I say 147? Yeah. Um, Yeah, verse 19. <clears throat> he says, He declares his words to Jacob, his statutes and his ordinances to Israel, and he has not dealt thus with any nation. And as for his ordinances, they have not known them. Praise the Lord. Right. So that's just showing us the difference between Israel that had the word of God, had the law of God, and the nations that were ignorant of God's ordinances, what God requires, what God commands, what God wants. I mean, think about that. I mean, what's even worse is a society that has the word of God and are still ignorant to what God requires and what God wants. 
Uh, that's, that's, think of the accountability of that. You have the word, you have the Bible, you have the revelation, but you still choose to be ignorant. It's incredible. Right? Um, that's it. That's all I got. Oh, praise God we are out of time anyway. So <laughs> let's pray and uh, we'll go to worship. Okay, let's pray together. Father, Lord, again, we thank you for your grace and your mercy. We thank you for the word of your grace that is able to build us up in the most holy faith. And Lord, protect us, Lord, from unbiblical expressions of the means of grace, Lord, knowing that, uh, Father, that you've ordained for us your word, you've given to us your ordinances, you've given us the blessing of the Lord's Supper every month, Lord. We uh, uh, Next next Sunday, we're going to be celebrating the ordinances. And so um, we pray that you would prepare our hearts, Lord, and... Um, that you would have us to take advantage of the means of grace as we study them more and more. And I thank you, Lord, that I'm surrounded uh, by brethren that love the means of grace. I see them using the means of grace, just thriving under the means of grace. And so, Lord, I pray that we would always be built up by your word in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.